book of Acts, and we are in chapter 19. And we're going to start in chapter 18 because I want to read something to you again that we had read a few weeks ago. Uh, And we had this kind of interesting thing happen at the end of chapter 18 where Paul's second missionary journey ends and then abruptly the very next verse, the third missionary journey begins, which was kind of confusing. And honestly, just reading through it a bunch of times in my life, I never really noticed that abruptness until we were doing this study. But let's read it again, Acts 18, 18, and and just if you haven't been with us, last week we studied Apollos, who uh, was a key player in the New Testament, and we looked at who he was and how he came to be and effective in ministry and things like that. And uh, this week we're going to begin Paul's third missionary journey, which This is his third and final missionary journey that's actually talked about in the book of Acts. There is a fourth missionary journey that some people suppose happened after the book of Acts, but that's not in Scripture, so we won't really be getting into that too much. But the ones that are recorded, this was the third missionary journey, and it starts tonight. So Acts 18, 18, let's start there. So their last stop before this was Corinth. It was the last stop. On, on, his, on this missionary journey. This is what it says. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chinchuria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So they make a very quick stop in Ephesus. This was their first time to Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and then he heads home back to Antioch. So while he's in Antioch resting, taking a break, Priscilla and Aquila remain in Ephesus, and they continue the work while he's gone. Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. Then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Phygeria, strengthening all the disciples. So that's the beginning of the third missionary journey. So again, it's kind of abrupt. It's not quite the break that you would expect, but the reality is that the book of Acts wasn't written to talk about Paul's break in Antioch. You know, so so he as he's breaking in Antioch, there's just not much to write about, so we just pick up immediately when he actually starts doing something again. So he he ends the second one in Antioch, and literally verse 23 begins the third missionary journey. It, is, it begins this way. After spending some time there, it doesn't tell us how long, but it's uh, most scholars believe it was between 6 and 12 months based on the thing the thing there and if also if you remember there's other parts in the scripture where it talks about Paul teaching at Antioch so when Paul this is like Paul coming back to his home church and while he's there you know of course he's going to get to work there also Paul didn't seem like the type of person that could just sit around on his hands you know he probably had to be doing something uh, not to mention potentially writing letters to the other churches and things like that But he taught in Antioch as well, and he would strengthen the believers there. So after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phygeria. Now, 
I'm going to show you, uh, Shane, if we can, let's put up map two. And, you know, those, those dang media guys, you know, you just got to watch them because they don't even have the third map for tonight that we're supposed No, I'm just kidding. That was my fault. I forgot to give it to them, and I was mad about that, but it was a little too late. It was, I realized it during worship. But, but anyway, we can look at the second map any, anyway. So the second map, you see when it says he left for the, the area of Galatia, that's that big green spot there. And you can see this was all of Paul's second missionary journey. Started in Antioch there in Syria and headed north through Galatia, through Asia, into uh, Philippi, Corinth, all those areas in Macedonia, then came down through the Mediterranean Sea back. His, second mission, his third missionary journey, I'm going to show you the map next week because, again, you can't ever depend on those media guys. You know, it's just a big problem we have in the church. But anyway, um, <laughs> no, that was me. It was totally my fault. But if you look at it, it's going to be very similar to this. And actually what he does is he heads up through Galatia and he visits all the... Actually, the only new church that's planted on the third missionary journey is the Ephesian church. And in, that, and in a sense, you could almost say that that one had already been started because Priscilla and Aquila had been there doing work, and no doubt they had already done a lot of groundwork there. Actually, the whole third missionary journey is just revisiting these churches and, and investing and further discipleship, further training, and they really don't spread beyond this area much. Now, that, that's true and not true in some ways, and I'll, and I'll show you what I mean. But if you look at this map, this is what happened. Imagine he takes the exact same route that he takes, that you're seeing here, and all the way back to Corinth, which is on the left-hand side, Achaia there. Once he gets to Corinth, he turns back around and goes back through again on his way home. He doesn't go through the Mediterranean on the third missionary journey. He goes back through hitting all the... He just came through visiting them. He goes back through hitting all of them again on the, on the way home. So it's very similar to this one. And mostly he's just revisiting these churches. But a big thing that happens and ends up taking up almost uh, probably 75% of the missionary journey is that he ends up spending three years in Ephesus. And this was the longest time that he spent anywhere. He had spent two years other places, but he goes to Ephesus and he, he just ends up having so much fruit. And we've talked about this all along the way, how it just seems like Paul never really had an agenda as far as where he was going to go, how long he was going to be there. It was almost all dictated by the fruit and by whether or not the door was open or not. He even had situations where before, you remember on the very first missionary journey, he went to go into Asia, and you remember the, it says that the Holy Spirit forbid him to go into Asia, and so they 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 uh, they went past Asia, or actually I think that was second missionary journey. They went past Asia and ended up in Philippi. Well, on this one, they end up reaching. You're going to see the Scripture tells us they end up reaching all of Asia through Ephesus, just just through what Paul is doing in Ephesus. They end up reaching the whole you know, area of Asia. So let's go back and look at the map. If Yeah, still up there. The big pink area right there in the middle where it says Asia. Now, that's not Asia like we know it today. That was a province in the Roman Empire. So don't, it's not anything to do with the Orient. This is totally different. 
But this province, they had skipped it on the first one. They'd went around it. Now, when he goes to Ephesus, you're going to see that that whole area is reached from Ephesus. And then when you read in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes to the seven churches of Asia. You remember he writes, he, he opens the book of, of Revelation by writing seven letters to these churches in Asia, Laodicea, Smyrna, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, all of these are churches in Asia, and we don't actually hear about them getting planted on this missionary journey, but through the work that Paul was doing in Ephesus, it was spreading all through that continent and presumably, or through that area and through, and through that province, and presumably that's when these churches were, were planted, those seven churches that you read about in Revelation. Okay, so... This missionary journey probably ended up being about four to five years. Again, we know he spent just we know he spent three years just in Ephesus, and he mostly revisiting previous churches, um, and then planting the Ephesian church. So let's pick up in chapter nineteen, verse one. Chapter nineteen, verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. This is after he's already gone through Galatia and visited all those churches that we read about just a minute ago in verse 23. It doesn't, you know, that's the only information we get about it is in that one verse. He doesn't tell us anything that happened there while he was revisiting. So it just picks up with him in Ephesus. So it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus, and there he found some Disciples. Remember, he left Priscilla and Aquila there. So apparently, they'd made some disciples while they were there. And verse 2, or they could have been other disciples. It doesn't tell us. Verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is such an interesting question to me. I mean, if, if I walked up to any of you and I said, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You would think that was a little weird. I'm I'm thinking the reason that he's asking this in this case is because they'd had all this experience with Apollos. You you remember Apollos only knew of John's baptism, and we talked about that being that uh, they they weren't around for the book of Acts, uh, the beginning of the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. They hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit the way that the other believers had been, and tongues of fire and Holy Spirit came down on them, and they're all speaking in tongues and everything like that. Apollos hadn't experienced that. So it said Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside. They taught him more accurately, not just the baptism of John, but they taught him the baptism of Jesus. So now Paul, when he begins to meet, he knows that Apollos has been working at Corinth. So he meets these believers and he asks them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When you believed in Christ, they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. (laughs) And he said, well... Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. So again, like Apollos. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
there were about 12 men in all. Now, I know some people are afraid of speaking in tongues, you know, because people came from different churches and things like that. But speaking in tongues is all through the Bible. And it's a miraculous sign that happens when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it, it happens here. And actually, almost every single time you see somebody filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, they speak in tongues. Uh, or, you know, speak in tongues, and here it says, and prophesy. So what is that? Well, it's, it's supernatural utterance, and, and we've spent other times talking about it in depth. We're not going to do that tonight. Probably the most extensive uh, you know, passage on it is 1 Corinthians 14 in the New Testament, and Paul explains very clearly that when someone is speaking in tongues, that they're not speaking foreign languages. We, we've talked about that in the very beginning of early book of Acts when we went through that, but that they are speaking to God not men, for no man understands them. All right, this is very clear from 1 Corinthians 14. And again, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I've spent so much time on this in other sessions. But if they were speaking in foreign languages, what is the point of that here? <laughs> right? They, Paul lay hands on them. Paul lays hands on them. They get the Holy Spirit. And then just all of a sudden they start speaking Spanish and French for who knows why. No, <laughs> there's no one around that, you know. What is the point of that here? Of course not. That's not what that is. Um, and we've explained in detail what it is in other, play, in other sessions. We won't get into it too much tonight. Uh, this isn't the only instance where this happened. And I want to look at another instance briefly. Again, we're not going to spend all our time here. But I want to go back to Acts chapter 8 real quick and look at something that happened there in Acts chapter 8 because it gives... It's actually even more clarity there because... In this passage, you might think, well, the only reason he asked them if they'd received the Holy Spirit when they believed is because he was thinking, well, maybe they, had, maybe they only knew about John's baptism. Well, in Acts chapter 8, the same thing happens with Peter, though, and, and, the, uh, and the other apostles. And it's not because they were baptized into John's baptism. They, they actually believed in Christ like everybody else. Let's look at this, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. So what happens is Philip goes down to Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel. You know, he's had some amazing experiences, right? The, he, he meets the eunuch, and, and, he, and, and uh, he gets saved and baptized, and then he's translated somewhere else by the Spirit. And, you know, so he's, he's man, this, they're right in the throw of this just massive revival, signs, wonders, miracles, all these amazing things happening. He goes down to Samaria, and let's read Acts 8.12. It says, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So he preaches... And, and what is he preaching? We're in Acts chapter 8 now, so remember, Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit's already been poured out, Jesus has been crucified, like he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's already been baptized in the Holy Spirit himself. When they believe Philip, as he preached the good news uh, of the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, talking about Simon the magician, uh, that's earlier in the chapter. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So 
Remember, they don't have cell phones. They don't have email. They can't send text messages. They can't make a phone call. So, so Philip is in Samaria, which is about 50 miles from Jerusalem. And word travels by what? Donkey, you know, foot, foot traffic. Somehow gets back to Jerusalem that, hey, there's revival breaking out in Samaria. Peter, some of the other apostles, they... Uh, Peter, John, they pack their bags, and they start the journey. Now, I don't know how many miles they traveled in a day, but I'm assuming this took at least two, three days. So two, three days to get the word back to them, hey, people are getting saved in Samaria. Two, three days traveling from Jerusalem to Samaria. So now we're past a week. These people have been saved and baptized, living for God, you know, being taught by Philip. And then verse 14, look what happens. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, if every single person, and I'm just going to use the language that the Bible uses, okay, and, and because people get hung up on the language thing, I'm just going to say exactly what the Bible says. If everyone receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, what's going on here? How, how in the world do we have a group of people that were saved, baptized, believe in the name of Jesus, and then at least a week later, the apostles show up, and why are they coming? It tells us why they're coming. It says they're, they're coming because when they were saved, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit. So he says, when they got there, they came down and prayed for them. Again, look at the language. That they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. It doesn't tell us specifically that they spoke in tongues, but we know that they did when they received the Holy Spirit from all of the context. So what is the point of that? Well, again, we've talked about this other places, and we're not going to spend a massive amount of time here. But sometimes I meet believers, and if this isn't you, don't worry about it. Look, if you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, you love God, and you're happy with your relationship with God and where you're at, and you go, I don't want any of that speaking in tongues stuff, and I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't know about all that. Okay, that's between you and God. I'm not like up here twisting your arm going, you, need, you know, we're not one of those churches that bring you down to the front, and we get 20 people around you, and we just pray over you, and you ain't going home until you speak in tongues. I don't care if we're here till 2 o'clock in the morning, we're praying on you, you're going to speak in tongues, then you can go home. Okay, we don't do that. Um... But, but I'll say this, I do, my position has always been, man, if there's anything uh, that God has for me that he says I can have, I want it. <laughs> like, I don't want, you know, and, and even things that I, that, that I don't have. Like, in, they're in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you know, it talks about the gifts of the Spirit, right? Gifts of healing, prophesying, words of wisdom. Look, I, I don't have the, as far as I know, I don't have the gift of healing. Everybody I pray for to get healed, you know, they got to keep on praying after I pray for them, you know. That's, but the Bible says to pray for those gifts and desire them earnestly. So, so I don't just go, well, you know, that isn't operating in my life, so it must not be real or, 
oh, well, you know, I don't need that. No, hold on a minute. If God gave those gifts to the church, how many believe we need them? They're there for a purpose and they're there for a reason. Now, you may not fully understand it. You may go, well, I don't know about that. I don't know what that is. I've never been taught about that. Well, that's fine. But, you know, just claim that. Claim the, the ignorance of it, but don't go, well, you know, that's not right or that's not for today. Look, I have seen, since we started this church, I have personally prayed with and seen a, several people that were hungry for God, hungry for the Holy Spirit, that they just knew in their heart, there's more, there's another level that I want to go to with God that I feel like I can't go to. And the Lord blessed them with being filled with the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit, just like we see in the book of Acts. I believe and know that that can still happen today and does happen today. And here's what I'm going to tell you. If that's you and you say, I feel like I'm missing something, I feel like there's more to my relationship with God, and I don't know what that is, I would encourage you to read these verses and pray and say, God, if these believers were missing something, if I'm missing something, I want to know what it is, and I'm open to it, and I want to receive the Holy Spirit. And does it mean you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life? No. Does it mean you don't have the Holy Spirit working in your life? No. But this is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the way that we see it in the book of Acts. So uh, I would never try to force this on anybody because it doesn't work. You know, if <laughs> that's not how you receive it. You, you receive this when you're hungry for it and you're seeking it like the Word of God said. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open. If you're not seeking, asking, or knocking, you go, I don't want nothing to do with that. Well, then don't, don't worry about it. God's not going to bother you with it because he does. that's not how it happens. But when, you begin, when a person begins to get hungry for God, and they begin to pursue God, and they put aside all their old religious ideas, and they read things like this in the book of Acts, and just with a, a humble heart, they say, God, I believe that there's more. I, I don't know what it is. I don't, have to, I don't fully understand it. But I, I want everything that you have for me. Then I believe that God can begin to minister to you in this way. Amen? Amen. Okay, back to Acts chapter 19. So, these guys in Ephesus... Paul prays for them. They'd only been baptized uh, in the name of, uh, of John or in the baptism of John. And so on hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months... He spoke boldly. So Paul goes back to his old strategy. He goes to the synagogue. He begins speaking to Jewish people. And for three months, they listened to him. That's a lot longer than a lot of these other places. A lot of these other places, it was only a day or two, sometimes an hour, before the whole city was stirred up. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Now let's go back to the map that I had earlier for you. This is what I was telling you about. Ephesus is all the way down, sort of in that left 
corner of Asia. And from that one city, as he preached for two years, over and over again in the hall of Tyrannus, it says that the word of God spread to all of Asia. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how powerful the seed of the gospel is? That it could be one person preaching and then all of those people go out and spread that message where they go. And before you know it, the whole province of Asia has been reached. And then we get in book of Revelation, these other seven churches and seven different cities planted. All because of what Paul was doing in Ephesus. So, he preached as long as he had an open door in the synagogue to the Jews. I love Paul's commitment to the Jews. I love how committed he was. He never gave up on them. Even though he got mad a few times and said he was going to. Remember, he said, enough of y'all. I'm going to the Gentiles. And then he would always come back to the Jews and preach to them first. And he obviously had some fruit. He preached for three months before finally they got tired of it and said, look, you know, we don't want to hear it anymore. They started speaking evil before the congregation. So he, he withdrew from them and he went to what the scripture calls the hall of Tyrannus. So this would have been like uh, modern day, you know, uh, like a, a venue that could be rented out or used um, by the citizens of the community. So most scholars think that Paul was actually paying for this facility, renting it, using it, ministering every day. This continued for two years and, and all of those, it, we don't have any indication that Paul ever left Ephesus, yet the word of God left Ephesus through his preaching in the hall of Tyrannus to these disciples. And his preaching every single day, preaching the gospel, preaching, it spread out there to the whole province of Asia. Now, this comes full circle because you remember on the second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit specifically told Paul, do not go into Asia. This is amazing to me. Because when you first read that, you're like, why in the world would Paul be trying to go minister? And it says the Holy Spirit forbade Paul, said, do not go in to Asia. And so he obeyed. He didn't know why. He didn't get an explanation. Here we are, you know, several years later, maybe four to five years later. And now it makes sense. Now the whole province is being reached. And look at the, I guess you could say, the effort or the work that he's having to do to reach it. God had a specific way he was going to do it. And he could have tried to go do it by the arm of the flesh. Who knows whether he would have had fruit or not. He could have went to those cities, got his head busted in, arrested, beat. You know, that, all that stuff happened everywhere he went to. But this way, it just seemed like there was a grace on it. All he did, preach faithfully day after day. And then it just began to spread throughout the whole province. And he never actually had to do it himself. He just preached to those people right in Ephesus. And it spread out from there. I'm telling you, if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you've probably had experiences like this. I hope you've had experiences like this where you tried to do it your way and just busted your head against a brick wall, and then you finally yielded and submitted, and you did it God's way, and you're like, why didn't I just do that a long time ago? Because this was so much easier, so much better, so much more grace, so much more peace on this way. And I, in the ministry, I've had that happen so many times where I wanted to do something, start something, you know, grow something, and just in my heart felt like, nope, not, not time. Not right now, not yet, don't do that, not how I want you to do that. 
and not understanding, sitting back going, this doesn't make any sense. You know, this is for the kingdom. Why can't we do this? Why can't we move forward on this? But I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit. And then only years later, months, did it, did it make perfect sense? Did it make complete sense? Boy, I think all of us, again, hopefully, had similar experiences like that when COVID came around. There were a lot of things leading up to COVID. Nobody knew COVID was coming. Nobody knew what was about to happen in 2020. And yet there were a lot of things we were doing that I'm like, ah, this doesn't make total sense. And then as soon as COVID hit, I go, ah, this makes perfect sense. Now, because God's been prepared, he knew it was coming. It may have caught us by surprise, but it didn't catch him by surprise. He knew about it. And those who listen to the Holy Spirit, he'll prepare you. He'll, he'll, he'll prepare you along the way. You'll not show up unprepared. So I kind of see this in that. I see God had a plan to reach Asia all along, and thank God that Paul listened to the Holy Spirit, and he didn't try to do it his way, but he did it God's way. Amen. Very, very important lesson for us in this. So Paul ends up using uh, a secular venue and has great success. He doesn't just preach in the synagogue. And I don't know if there's any connection here in this or not. I think it's interesting that in modern day, a lot of churches are getting started this way. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of churches modern day are not using church facilities. I know when I was in Tulsa, a lot of churches were using uh, high schools. They didn't, you know, high schools don't meet on Sunday. They'd rent out the gymnasium and they'd get their church started there. And some of those churches would meet there three, four years and uh, that's how our church was started. You know, our church was started in the Holiday Inn Express. And then we moved to the used car parking lot of the old Turpin Pontiac building. And then this used to be a Polaris dealer. <laughs> and they didn't have a steeple or nothing like that, you know. Matter of fact, the, if you look at the sign when you leave, just a little fun fact about One Life. When you leave today... You see the big, huge One Life sign out front. I've never said this publicly. I've told a few people this one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But now you'll know. You're an insider now. You'll know. When you leave, you'll see the One Life sign. There's a big earth in the right-hand corner. Well, that was because we couldn't get rid of it. It was a speedometer. For the Polaris dealer, it was a speedometer. So we said, well, we can't get rid of it. So what? Well, we're going to reach the world. So we put the world up there. You'll notice it. On your, on your way out there. See, no one knew that. But, yeah, this, is, you know, this wasn't originally a church building. Before that, it was McCoy's Lumber. And what's the point of all that? Well, some, sometimes people get hung up on that. You're not, not anybody comes here. But, I mean, some people that have been in church and just steeped in religiosity, you know, was, well, it's not a church building. It doesn't have a This is the house of God, brother. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, well, I mean, you know, when the book of Acts got started, they were meeting in people's houses. Okay, Paul taught out of the hall of Tyrannus, and he would have taught out of, you know, the hall of Zeus if they had opened that to him. He didn't care. It wasn't about the building. It's never been about the building. You know, that doesn't matter. God will use McCoy's Lumber, Polaris Dealer, Holiday Inn. He'll use a church with a steeple. He doesn't care. The building is just not important. And obviously, we see that from the scripture here. Okay, verse 11. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin 
were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Can you imagine so much power, so much anointing, so much of the Spirit of God that the sick people couldn't get there, so people would take handkerchiefs and aprons that had just touched Paul They'd bring it back home to the person that was sick, lay it on the bed, lay it on their head, and instantly they'd be healed or demons would leave them just from that handkerchief. I don't know about you, but I'd love to see a little bit of that modern day. I'd love to see I take this shirt off when I get home, you know, throw it on the floor, one of my kids go in there and just touch it and just, whoo, all of a sudden, just having an encounter with God right there on the closet floor. I mean, you know, I would love that. Hasn't happened yet, but... You know, we're still in this age, believe it or not. There's nothing really that's changed. There's nothing from the book of Acts to today that's changed. I know that maybe we don't see this kind of power, but me personally, I never give up hope. I never give up faith for it because it's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. All we're seeing here is just the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit at work. And again, you don't see it just constant. Even in Paul's life, you don't see it constant. Even in the apostles' lives, you don't see it constant. Even in the epistles, you don't see it constant. This was a revival. This was a powerful moment of revival. Later in the epistles, when Paul's writing back to some of these churches, you can see that this is not exactly in operation the way it was here. You know, for example, when Paul writes to Timothy... He says, hey, Timothy, he says, I know you're having some stomach trouble. I know you got some little stomach trouble going on in here. He says, because you're drinking too much water, you need to drink a little wine. That's going to help your stomach. You're drinking all that water, and it's hurting it. And, I, and I'm assuming the idea there was that, you know, uh, waterborne illnesses uh, and sicknesses and things like that. Well, he, I'm thinking, man, if this was still at work, right? I mean... Paul's hand touched a handkerchief and it touched somebody. Well, now Timothy's reading a letter that Paul wrote. Isn't that the same idea? And, and, you know, he's not just miraculously healed of his stomach thing. So I think sometimes people are like, well, you know, it happened in the book of Acts. It can happen today. That's true. It, it absolutely can. But even for them, it wasn't, they didn't just live on this high mountain for 40 years. Okay, this was a powerful, powerful moment in the book of Acts. And I think... Throughout church history, you've seen, throughout, if you study church history, you see this ebb and flow. You, and what you really see is you see this massive revival where salvation is easy, healing is easy, the power of God is easy, you know, backsliders coming back, people repenting, all that is just easy. It feels like it's just, God's just doing it all. And then, and then what you see happen is you see people start uh, going away from the Lord, getting into sin, and not you know, and and going down and going away from it until they're in a place where, where's the power of God? All of a sudden, where where's the power of God? Where are the miracles? Where are the healing? Where are the things? And then what happens is people begin to repent, and they begin to they begin to cry out to God, and then before you know it, revival hits, and and that's how it happens in church history. You can go study it and see the different revivals that have happened throughout history. It usually comes out of a group of people, somebody that their hearts are broken, they're reading this stuff and they're going, where is it? Why aren't we seeing this? We believe we should be experiencing and they just pray. They're repenting for their nation. They're repenting for their church. They're repenting for their pastors. They're repenting for their families. They're repenting for the sins of their nation and they're saying, God, forgive us. We, we, we're turning from that. We need you. 
And out of that comes an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so um, that's still possible is what I want you to understand. It's still possible. You don't, don't ever read this and go, oh, just that was then. Well, that's true. It was then. But we're not uh, excluded from this either, from experiencing the power of God in this way. So even handkerchiefs, aprons had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them. Evil spirits came out of them. And this is funny. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Not sure what that is. An itinerant exorcist. Okay, Jewish exorcist. Undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. (laughs) All right. So this is funny to me because apparently this is what these guys did for a living. They traveled around and they tried to exercise demons. Okay, they tried, they tried to get demons out of people. Um, and so they're seeing Paul have a lot more fruit with this. They're seeing Paul operating under the power of God, using the name of Jesus, looking at people that have a demon say, In the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, devil. In the name of Jesus, come out. And they're seeing people get set free. And they go, we're going to try that. Okay? It's what we do for a living. We're the experts. But let's, let's add this element to our exorcism tool belt. So they said, over the evil spirits, they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. So obviously they don't know Jesus themselves. Because it's not, they're not speaking about him from a personal standpoint, they're just saying the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? In other words, (laughs) I don't know if they could see something in the spirit. I don't know exactly how this worked, like what the demons were seeing in the spirit, but it was like, okay, that one's got power. I know Jesus, Paul's got power, but you don't have any power. And you don't know what you're doing. And you don't have any authority. It's just interesting that they could even recognize that. It just tells us a lot about the spiritual world. So the evil spirit said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them, overpowered them. There were seven of these guys, by the way. Overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, even without YouTube and iPhones and all that. It became known to everybody what happened. Now, today, of course, it would have been on social media. And quite frankly, I would have been one of the first ones to watch. We probably would have shown it in church (laughs) if I could get my hands on it. But... This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So, basically, uh, well, let's just keep reading, because I want to touch on a few things there, but I want to finish the chapter. Uh, So, verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So Paul was having a time in Ephesus. He was having a good time. You can see why he stayed there three years. He was having a lot of fruit. And this is true revival. Again, he didn't have this everywhere he went. But in Ephesus, they're having true revival. I mean, you, this is one of the signs of true revival is this level of repentance. People taking their, their books and their enchantment books and their sorcery books and they're bringing them out and they're just burning them and they were very, very valuable, very costly. Up to, he said, 50,000 pieces of silver. They're burning them because they're fleeing sin. They're fleeing the demonic. They're turning to Jesus Christ. So, putting these two passages together, let's just make a few points. Number one, the demonic is very real. Okay, sometimes people want to discount the the demonic. They want to go, you know, well, I don't know about all those demons, or I don't know about the devil, you know, and hell, and all of that. Well, from Scripture, the demonic is very real. We have, as believers, we have no reason to be afraid of demons Satan, any of that, we have complete authority over it. True believers, true followers of Christ have complete and total authority over demons. You see all this through Scripture. It wasn't just Jesus that cast out demons. Paul cast out demons. Disciples cast out demons. This never happened to a true believer, true follower of Christ. But see, everything in the kingdom works off of relationship. And These people who were truly in Christ, they have the authority of Christ. And so those demons had to obey Paul just like they would obey Jesus. But these other ones, they weren't in Christ. Now, they knew about Jesus. That's a whole other sermon we could just, we could preach right now. They knew about Jesus. They they had seen the power of Jesus. They had a lot of information about Jesus, but they were not a son or daughter of God. So they didn't carry that authority on their life. And then so when, when it t- came time for the rubber to meet the road, they were exposed in front of everybody. And they were humiliated and they were embarrassed. And again, we, that could be a whole other sermon. When we get down to verse 18, and it says, And many of those who were now believers, they were confessing their sin. They were divulging their, their sorcery and their practices. They had practiced magic arts. They brought their books They burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is what I want you to know, that this is what true repentance looks like, okay? Whenever you see someone having a true salvation experience, this is what true repentance looks like. It looks like burning the bridge behind you so that there is no return back to the old life. Not, I'm over here with Jesus, then I'm going to sneak back over here and dabble a little bit in this, then I'm going to feel bad and repent, and I'm going to come back over here with Jesus, and then a few weeks later, I'm going to come back over here and dabble in this, then I'm going to come back, and for a lot of people, that's what repentance is. The repentance is, when I sin, I just ask for forgiveness, and then I'm going to sin later, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and we're just going to keep going like this. But really, from Scripture, this is what true repentance looks like. True repentance is setting fire to the old life and basically entering a room without any doors, so to speak, or without any exits because I'm not going back. I'm not going back to that. Also notice that sometimes true repentance is very costly. I mean, in this case, financially, it was costly. 
But anybody who truly repents and turns from their old life and has to cut off old relationships and maybe, you know, uh, change jobs or there's, I mean, people in other countries, sometimes they lose family members. They're, they're kicked out of the family, you know, excommunicated from the family. True repentance can be very costly. And I, again, I think sometimes in America, people don't want serving God or to come to God to cost them anything. They, they, they want to just come and it's like, it's like a little addition to their life. It's like, here's my life. I may, yeah, I'll try to stop doing a few things and then God's going to add a bunch of good stuff in my life. That's not what scripture demonstrates to us that true salvation and true repentance look like. True repentance is a crucifixion. True salvation is a crucifixion. This is how Jesus talked about it. The old man dies and you become crucified with Christ. Everything in your old life is on the chopping block. It it doesn't even mean that you lose it all, but you lose it in here. In other words, I'd be willing to give up anything. There's no relationship, no, no amount of money, no sin, no job, nothing that's not on the chopping block. It's all been crucified, even if just in my heart. Now, sometimes the, the things that you're laying on the altar, God doesn't ask you to give up. And so you, you, you get to continue those things because they're not sinful. But Jesus said it this way one time. He said, anyone who is not, uh, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back, he said, is not worthy to be my disciple. In other words, if, you're, if you've got your hand on the plow and you're following Christ, but you keep looking back to the world, he said, you're not worthy to be my disciple. So it's a very extreme viewpoint. And I, and I don't always know that salvation has been taught properly. But here, I love to see the way these people are responding. I love to see this kind of repentance. Just casting off everything, coming to God. And let me, let me tell you something. I guarantee you what they experienced from God was was reciprocal to what they were doing here. In other words, what they gave up, it, it matched the way God responded to them also. And I see this a lot of times where people half-heartedly come to God and then they complain about this Christianity thing. Like, well, you know, I started going to church or I started reading my Bible and, you know, I, I don't know. I just I don't seem to experience God like everybody else or things haven't just turned out for me. Well, what you've experienced probably matches what you've put in. And I can tell you that these people, I guarantee you, what they received from God matched what they gave up right here. When they turned to him with all of their heart and they left everything and they set those books on fire, I guarantee you God met them with that same level of commitment. Because the word of God tells us that. The word of God says... That when you, he says, when you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. Well, what if you seek him with half of your heart? It's not the same as if you sought him with all of your heart. When you seek me diligently, you will find me. Diligently. That diligently is a, an adjective there to describe the way that we seek him versus what? Half-heartedly. Lukewarm. Just, just, just barely doing it. Well, you're not going to get the same response. You're not going to get the response from God you're looking for if you don't do it wholeheartedly. Okay? So, I I believe that the way God responded to them, the fact that the word of God continued to spread from there all over Asia, okay, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That is, I believe that is uh, 
a response to or connected to how they repented, how they turned to God. They came to God with their whole heart. And I, and I know this is a Wednesday night crowd, so these, I know everybody here is like a little bit more saved than just the ones on Sunday maybe, but so I know we're, I know we're like, you know, the, the real spiritual crowd. But for the body of Christ at large, okay, we, we could use a little more of this. We could use a little more of turning to God with our whole heart. And, and forsaking some things that the world counts as normal and the world, the world counts as good and going, no, I, I'm forsaking that. I'm not living. I'm going all out for God. I'm going all out for God. You know these people had people in the community that were like, oh, what's a little bit of these you know, magic practices going to hurt? Your mama did it. Your grand, everybody, everybody does it. What's it really going to hurt you know, if you serve God and do a little bit of this? And they're like, no, I, I already set those things on fire. There's no going back now. There's no going back. And that's how it should be for us. Amen. 